Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. My brothers and sisters, Thanksgiving is over. How do you feel? Were you stressed out about it, and now you are relieved? Were you excited for it, and now you are sad? Were you dreading it, and now you are at peace again? Thanksgiving, like many holidays, hits everyone a little bit differently, depending on where you're at in life. And at this time of year on my social media feed, I don't know about yours, but I saw a bunch of these jokes coming around, these memes talking about, yeah, first of all, that kids will only ever eat the dinner rolls. That was a big one this year. No matter how hard you slave on everything else, they're just interested in the bread, and I can't blame them. But also these jokes that really betray something really sad, if you think about it. These jokes, these memes about how awkward family get-togethers are now. About how as you get older, you have less and less in common with your family and how other people make sarcastic comments about what Thanksgiving's going to be like and how they are dreading it. And how sad, right? Because grandma doesn't like your tattoo. Or because everyone's going to keep asking you, when are you going to get married? Or when are you, you going to have kids? Or when are you going to go to college? Or when are you going to do that thing that your cousin asked you to do? Or what are you doing in your retirement over and over and over again? That can be a little bit much, can't it? But to think that things can change so quickly. Because if you had a childhood like mine, you grew up looking great, greatly look for, looking forward to Thanksgiving, to the get-together, to seeing your family. And for many people, that does seem to change over time. And how sad that you would feel distant, apart from your own family, right? That the people with whom you share flesh and blood would seem to you like strangers with just the passage of time. But what's even sadder about that is the fact that the family is a little illustration of the human race, isn't it? The family unit is a little piece, a little part of our race as a whole. So to see how sad it is when family members drift away as they get older, we're seeing what's happening with our entire species. Evidence that we have drifted apart, that we have grown apart, that we are strangers is all over. Watching the news on repeat is not good for your mental health. But even in this last month, we've had story after story of how terribly human beings can treat each other, their own flesh and blood, their, their own family members, the ways that we can hate and be aggressive and violent toward each other, even, even taking up arms to destroy each other. How did things get this way? Well, you, you can expect that I'm going to say at some point it's because of sin, and that might seem like a cop-out answer at this point, but realize what sin has done to us as a human family. Sin causes us. Sin is like a computer screen. If you were to sit at your computer at your desk for days on end, never taking a break, you know what would happen to your posture. It would not be good, would it? Your spine would begin to curl unnaturally forward toward your computer screen. Your neck 
hunching over as you sit there if you never took a break. That wouldn't be good for you, right? But it would be like your body is trying to conform itself to fit the screen almost. Sin has dramatically morphed and deformed the posture of our own hearts. Sin has caused the spine of our own soul to, go, to curl inward and to look not at a computer screen, but at the self. What I want, what I think, what I'm doing, what, where I'm going is the most important thing to me. And that's how you can feel like a stranger in your family's household, because you've grown apart, because each of you has gone in your own direction. You have each followed what you want to do, and sometimes that conflicts. And what happens to us when we become as selfish as sin can cause us to become? Then anyone who disagrees with the way that I think, who isn't on board for my self-improvement project, Anyone who says anything that I don't like or demonstrates that they are different from me becomes the enemy, don't they? And we react to our differences with anger, with hatred even, and sometimes in extreme cases with violence. When we look at the news and we see the terrible, terrible things that human beings can do to each other, we're staring in the face of what our own sinful nature is capable of because of how brutally selfish we can be. And whether you're a kindergartner on the playground telling someone, I don't like you just because you want to get back at them, or you're an adult, we only become more creative over time with the ways that we demonstrate our contempt for each other as a human race. But the times of Old Testament Israel in Isaiah's day were not drastically different. Technology, technology was different, world politics were different, but the, these same truths about human nature were all too real, were all too similar. Old Testament Israel did not have TV news, but if they did, and they, it would just be a nonstop running of war atrocities in Isaiah's day and violence and dismemberment and, uh, and, and crime. So the vision that Isaiah has would be just as much of a shock to his fellow Israelites as it is to us. What he provokes us to envision would be, as would be just as new and exciting and strange as it sounds to us. Because this is what he says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah sees a mountain. The mountain of the Lord. He's talking about Mount Zion, the worship place. And physically, geographically, Mount Zion was nothing to sneeze at. It, was, it wasn't really much of a mountain. It was more of a hill. But in a time, in an era of human history where the, the top of a mountain was a common place of worship, you can see how significant this is. God's mountain, Mount Zion is seen as taller, way taller than any other mountain, taller than Baal's mountain, taller than Asherah's mountain, taller than Molech's mountain, taller than my mountain, 
taller than your mountain. Because God alone is worth worshiping. Not even myself. Haven't we had enough evidence that making ourselves as the end goal for our own lives is pointless and meaningless? Haven't we figured out by now that if we, if we commit ourselves fully to selfish endeavors, such as improvement of ourselves, living our own li- lives, or doing what, only what we think is right, haven't we figured out by now that that causes us to hate each other and harm each other? Let God's mountain be the tallest mountain, taller even than my own and your own. Isaiah wants us to picture a people, the entire human race, together again, saying to each other, let's go up to that mountain. Let's worship God together. The problem of disunity and hatred and everyone being on their own path has been solved in Isaiah's vision. Everyone is on the same page. Because the message that we're getting a lo- uh, in a lot of places is that the solution to our hatred toward each other is tolerance. That the solution to our arguments and our disagreement is tolerance. And what do people mean when they say tolerance? Well, they mean, I think what I think, you think what you think, and we just never talk about it. But that's not really agreement, is it? That's faking unity. That's pretending that there's unity when it doesn't really exist. That's like you showing up at Thanksgiving dinner and your cousin is sitting next to you with whom you vehemently disagree with politically and you're just not going to bring politics up. The problem is still there though, even if you don't talk about it. Isaiah provokes us to envision something greater. A, A vision of the human race where we're not faking unity, but we actually have it. Unity of purpose. Unity of mind. Unity of desire. Let's go worship God. How is this possible? The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What unifies people better than something beautiful, than something good? You're standing out in front of your house talking to your neighbor, and all of a sudden a beautiful convertible from the 1950s drives by with a fresh paint job. What do you both do? You stop talking and you watch the car go by, right? Because something interesting, something attractive catches your attention. You share that moment together and you probably start talking about the car, right? But brothers and sisters, what is more beautiful than the gospel? What is more beautiful than what Isaiah calls the law of the Lord, the message of Scripture? That yes, we are all horribly sinful, that we are all caved inward, but Jesus has come to save us from ourselves, from our own selfishness. What did Jesus do about our violence, about our warfare, about our hatred? He endured it. He waged war on our war by suffering our war. 
he offered his closest friendship to his most evil betrayer. He offered his back to the whip. He offered his body to the cross. Why? To bring us peace. You know, they say that life is about the journey, not the destination. I would like to disagree with this. A journey is not a journey without a destination. Trying to get from point A is pointless unless you're going to point B. If there's no end to your journey, then you're just out for a walk, right? We call that wandering. Life is about the journey or about the destination. And where you see your destination will determine the way you live your life now, the way you walk on your journey. If you are someone who thinks that your destination is to make yourself as important and as wonderful and as self-actualized as possible, then that will lead you to not care much for your neighbor because they are just obstacles in your way. If your destination, if your whole life is a self-improvement project and that's the point, no one can join you on that. It's just you, and it is a lonely journey. But in Jesus Christ, he has given us a new destination. We know where we're going. When we say, come Lord Jesus, on Judgment Day, we know what happens next because of the gospel, because of the forgiveness of our sins. Our destination is eternal bliss with our Savior Jesus. An eternal bliss that we do not deserve, but has been freely won for us and provided to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. And that's where we're going together. This is a destination that causes us to journey together. You walk a road with each other, the road of the gospel. And so we say with one another, as we're saying by our mere presence in church this morning, come, let us worship God. Let us hear what God has to say about his love for us in his word, about how we're supposed to live our lives as we wait for him. Come, let us go back to the word together. We journey together. There's nothing more beautiful than the gospel, and there's nothing more unifying than something that is beautiful. Because there's coming, there is a day, brothers and sisters, where Jesus is coming to bring an end to all violence and hatred, to the effects of sin on his beloved human race. You prayed for it. If you pray like my family does, the common table prayer, we call it. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. And of course, in that moment, you're asking Jesus to join you at mealtime, recognizing that, from all, that Jesus is the one who's blessing you with the ability to eat together. But what do you say when you say, come, Lord Jesus? Aren't you also praying that come again, Lord Jesus, on Judgment Day and bring us back with you? Bring peace on earth like you promised to, like you were born on Christmas Eve to do. Bring us peace, Lord, by putting an end to our suffering and an end to sin. And you know the answer to that prayer? Jesus says, I will. I am coming soon, he says in Revelation. But in another sense, you don't have to wait. Because you've seen the peace, the unity that the gospel produces. You are a picture right now of the unity that the gospel produces because you, 
group of people with, with wild differences, but you have the most important thing in common, that we all have come to worship God. And here Jesus is with us where the word is preached. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, King of peace, sow your seeds of peace through the gospel among us and through us. We can see what's wrong with the human race, the hatred, the differences, the disunity. We don't have to wait for something to be done about that. Because every time you love your neighbor and preach to them the gospel, every time you point someone else to Jesus, you are sowing the seeds of peace using the one thing that can create true unity. So we say to each other, come on, let's worship. Let's worship the God of Jacob. Let's see the peace that we have. And you know, in Advent, there will be plenty of opportunities to do that as we start our midweek Wednesday night services. We say to you now and we'll say to you then, come, let's worship together. Let's take encouragement with one another from the one place where we can truly find it. Let's go up that tallest mountain and see how important, how supreme God is above everything else. How God and God alone is worth our trust and our reliance because God and God alone has saved us and loves us with an unfailing love. Come, Lord Jesus, as our King of peace. Amen.